0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. So I have this phrase that I use often in just media literacy classes. When you know nothing, you know everything. And to me, that's scary. Because when you know nothing, you know everything. The, comp- the sheer confidence in knowing everything is wild. And I think a lot of what's going on in the overwhelming world is that we're all learning we know so little that we know nothing. Like it was like there was this point where it's like knowing nothing meant we knew all oh, what we could, but we're being pushed with all these new terminologies, all these new cultural moments, all these new very rough and quick movements that kind of just appear. And these are new terms. These aren't just like new things or new uh, processes from the past. We often say these are unprecedented times. And then usually you get a historian that pops up in the replies and it's like, well, it's only unprecedented if you don't study history. And I go, well, I don't really know the precedent where we could literally create a meme and then a million people see it within minutes. Like that's just unprecedented. You know, that's just a time. And that type of overwhelming status of where we are, I think is like our sense-making abilities at this point are overwhelmed. We're, we're just firing on all cylinders. So we're just, I think if we stop and, like, really pause for a minute, like, I think we, I think we'd get very confused.
1: All right, Look Up listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Look Up podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. And as always, I just want to start off with a huge thank you. Thank you for listening along. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for giving us a review on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for contributing to the Patreon community. And thank you for offering guest recommendations. And of course, just thank you for listening in and coming along on this journey into what makes us all uniquely human today in this world of... Social media, information overload, and digifrenia. Today we have a special episode. A gentleman by the name of Jamie Cohen comes on the show to talk to us about all things memes. Memes are really interesting as a subject. They are nuanced, multi-layered, referential images that highlight subjects of digital culture and emergent tech. And really, if you follow the news cycle these days online, memes drive so much of the discourse that's happening around the world today. We dive into that on this episode. It is August 1st, 2020. And just this week, our president announced that he thinks the US election should be delayed. Be sharing more thoughts on that with you all in my next episode, which I think will be A solo show, my first solo show. But Jamie is super interesting because he has a PhD in cultural and media studies. In fact, he wrote the first peer reviewed academic paper on memes, on Pepe the Frog. For those of you that are not familiar with Pepe the Frog, that meme, one of the oldest, truest, and most convoluted and confusing of the memes, we go deep into that in this episode talk about a number of other subjects, Jungian psychology, cultural appropriation, historical rewrites, the power of media to control our consciousness and how it taps into our psychology and so much more. I feel so lucky that Josh from the Rushkoff team introduced me to Jamie. He's an incredible human and just has such, such a deep knowledge on this subject. So I hope that you really enjoy this show. I'm going to leave it there without any further interruption from me. This is Jamie Cohn. Jamie, welcome to the Look Up podcast. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. So happy that you were able to make the time. Well, thank you, thank you so
0: much. I really appreciate your time and enjoy talking to you. Thank you.
1: So, uh, I'm just going to dive in. I mean, you you have one of the most fascinating um, academic degrees that I think I've I've ever seen. Um, you hold a PhD in cultural and new media studies, right, from Stony Brook, with a concentration on on memes. Is that accurate?
0: Close uh, cultural and media studies. Uh, New media is what I apply it to. So I was Mm -hmm. actually I my academic career is actually longer than my Ph.D. I just graduated last August from it, but I've been running. I created and founded a degree at a college, a new media degree. Mm -hmm. And I've been running that before I had my Ph.D. So I actually graduated and then uh, got focused my degree on what I was already teaching. And so I focused the cultural media studies on um, memes, digital cultures. um, But just to be clear, what that really means is that you don't get a degree in memes, you focus it on what memes are the equivalent of in cultural studies. And in this case, it is um, uh, imagined communities, uh, nationalism, fascism, um, the the kind of the underpinnings, the cultural underpinnings of what make up memetic understandings of visual culture, object studies media archaeology Whoa, all of these things let's, together let's slow down
1: for a second because <laughs> i want i wanted to go i wanted to start with the base like the basic sure question. absolutely <laughs> what what is a meme good question so
0: i think it's best if we define it in the way that we'll talk about it today because a meme is a neologism or a term that was uh, coined in the 1970s by richard dawkins um but it's really, he he adapted it from the term my meme, um, the ancient Greek term of mimesis of replication, like the idea could do that. And his thought was that memes themselves are really just like genes. They are the smallest bit of culture. So where genes are the smallest bit of human, memes are the smallest bit of culture themselves, which makes them rapidly evolve, rapidly mutate, and so on and so forth. So that's the meme we use. Then there's two more recent memes. Um, Before the 2016 election, memes were more of like digital objects that were like shareable, cute, like um, referential jokes. And then post-2016 election, they're more uh, embedded with nuance and memes have some sort of political value. And so there's really like a messaging system that is memes today.
1: Interesting. And so I I noticed I want to read one of your quotes from a recent Forbes article you mentioned. Memes take large concepts and collapse them into highly shareable images or short videos embedded with nuance or references that require some level of savvy knowledge to understand. And then you you speak about um, meme literacy. So that, is meme literacy that understanding of, of the nuance behind some of these ideas? 100%. Meme literacy is
0: very similar to media literacy or digital media literacies. Um, In each of those is the idea that we can read media and write media. So literacy is reading and writing and in the abilities to read and write, we gain competencies in, in not just creation, but also in how we can discuss it and how we can think about media. So media literacy is absolutely necessary across the board. It is possibly one of the most important things we can learn because Anything can be accidentally turned into propaganda, but unless we don't know what those meanings of me- of cuts are, of the ways shots are framed, literally like the way like we frame video. Like if I talk down, it has a different meaning than if some of the cameras
1: above me. So those that's a media literacy kind of concept. I often I often prop up my my screen um, when I'm having a podcast because I don't want to feel like I'm talking down on, on someone.
0: And that's a youtuber's technique too. YouTubers often mount their cameras really high so it looks down on them so they always let the audience feel empowered by their speech. So it's all that's the that's a very media literacy savviness that you could read in addition to just consuming media. Meme literacy is a bit different because those are digital objects that are like usually redu- reduced to like a square or a frame that contains all the information. So instead of looking at it like we would dissect an image where we would read parts of it. It's framing its composition. Meme literacy is kind of turning the meme on its side and reading it like layers, like reading it as if it's archeologically excavated from reference to reference to reference.
1: And you wrote the first peer reviewed paper on, is it like, it's a proper academically researched paper on Pepe the frog. I mean, that's a meme that I would love to understand better at a nuanced level. What's, what's the story with Pepe? Like, where did Pepe come from? Yeah, this is a great question. I think it's one of the most important questions, because if you can
0: understand Pepe, that's kind of like the media literacy tools The media literacy. Like, if you can understand how to watch the Godfather properly. You kind of understand how to watch movies. You know, it's kind of like they give you the tool set. So Pepe is kind of like the meme literacy tool set. Like once you get that, you're like, Oh, okay. Um, And it's because Pepe is so complicated. And I think just a little quick plug for Matt Fury is Pepe the frog. The documentary is coming out soon. And that does, I think a good job of humanizing the background story of the artist, Matt Fury, who designed Pepe and kind of the travails of what happened. So, to make a really, absolutely long story short, it is—it's an insanely long story. No, no, keep it long. Keep it long. <laughs> well, this is this will be the time. as best as possible to transfer it. It is a series of events that occurred in real time. That all this is the, the peer-reviewed paper that Matt Applegate and I wrote. That is technically like what science. You know, it's like once once it's peer-reviewed, it becomes like how how we understand knowledge. Um, at the time in 2015. Uh, Matt Fury's frog had been pretty well used in online spaces as the feels good man frog, because that's Pepe's phrase. Uh, When he was Pepe, the frog was a cartoon from a, from Matt Fury's of like boys club. And at one point Pepe is uh, peeing in the toilet and his pants are down at his ankles, like a little boy. And his friend walks in and goes, why do you, why do you do that? And he goes, well, feels good, man. And so that became like kind of like this emoji esque um thing for a message board so it was a good response rather than adding a gif or an emoji you could use feels good man frog or feels good frog then um i'm just going to list out like a bunch of things that are in the paper that kind of like align at the exact same moment and this is why cultural studies are just so fascinating at the same time that pepe was becoming more prominent in social spaces uh the doge meme which is that dog um yes that, that was very popular since 2011 And the Obama campaign actually used it in in an ad, um, used it as an ad for like um, the healthcare for uh, Obamacare. And he used like a variation of the Doge meme, but what that does in a digital community is very fascinating because it seems like an encroachment. And it's not just an encroachment of the government into like these creative spaces, but it's also Obama who was a polarizing figure to a lot of these message boards. And that's an entirely different discussion. So Pepe became rare, a rare Pepe. And so the rarity of the meme meant that you couldn't share it. It Basically, you don't let the government have rare Pepe's, you know, don't let it's just (laughs) it's just ours. And um, so the rare Pepe's had value as with any commodity that is limited. And so people would create variations of the feels good man frog that were like weird. I'm talking real weird, like every type of art form you could have for Pepe existed. And then. One day Donald Trump comes down the golden escalator and declares his presidency and says certain dog whistles that were already well used in these forums. Mm -hmm. And they started using Pepe to carry that dog whistle. It was just like, it was just timing. Now, two other things happen simultaneously. The word "lol" in the game world of Warcraft would often be shortened into its variation. Kek, K-E-K. Kek also happens to be the name of an ancient Egyptian god who happens to be a frog. Okay, stick with me for this. When Trump came down that escalator, they placed the idea of the God Emperor themology, the theming of the Keck God onto Trump and Trump and Pepe merged to be the deplorable symbol of that. And then where Matt and I assumed Pepe in our thesis was that Pepe is ripe for commodification, that people make him an ad. We were right in one way, we were sure of the vessel, of carrying messages was right but we didn't really get that the vessel would be carried by the alt right so richard spencer and the alt right and the uh, nationalists uh, white nationalist groups made that the icon of that group so mm. pepe is wildly complicated so much so that there's also a split in history and this is the last bit of this so i don't take up the whole thing but just explain pepe so that split in history occurs in eastern western style as well um in the East in Hong Kong, Pepe is seen as a sign of liberation because the meaning was never corrupted or perverted by the alt-right there. So Pepe means something completely different. And because there's no intellectual property laws in in a lot of China, Pepe stores are around and that icon is very well liked. So Pepe Mm. is an extremely complicated uh, image of, of the internet and an artifact of the last five years that is like really fascinating to just endlessly speak about because of how much nuance is packed into
1: those things. Oh my God. It's so insane. (laughs) I, I, I mean, I mentioned this before our chat, like I'm I've been in the crypto community for the last three years and Pepe is all over the crypto community. Of course, there's Dogecoin and memes drive these communities and they drive the valuations of these underlying digital assets to Tens of billions, hundreds of well, not hundreds yet, but tens of billions of dollars. And it's insane to watch the power of of these memes, these digital ideas, these nuanced digital concepts, to drive behavior, like who is who is kind of the the charioteer? right? Is it the meme? Is it the creator of the meme? Like, what is the, can you talk to me about the evolution of a meme and how it, how it kind of becomes its own beast? It's so, it's yeah, so that's, that's
0: a, I think the connection you made and you sent me that great link about that currency that's using memes as like a thruster for like a crypto and blockchain type of uh, inventorying. And I think that's an important look at what a rare Pepe is because the idea of a rare Pepe is kind of inside of a blockchain. It, can only exist if it's unique from another one. That's that's what made them a rare Pepe. And the reason it stopped being rare is because somebody dumped the rare Pepe market into 4chan or on Reddit. They just <laughs> emptied the entire thing and lost its rarity because everybody was able to see them all at once, which is fascinating. But in that kind of gives the answer that the owner, Matt Fury, at that point was no longer in command of the image in any way. A good meme, a really good meme what we would call sometimes a dank meme or like like a really, <laughs> a really, a meme that like requires extra knowledge would be memes that are so removed from its original referent that you don't know or have to think about its originator. Like that's a good meme. So a, an example, just before I go back to the question of like blockchain or crypto and Dogecoin, because I think the Doge card is an important point too, um, is um, when... There is an image and this is hard to explain like on audio. It's obviously, this is what memes there's obviously an access issue for memes too, is that if you don't have alt text for them, it's very hard to understand memes in general. And then if you, even if you do have alt text, it makes no sense. So here would be the alt text of an image. It would be a photograph of dead plants or dying plants. And in the caption, it says in the white caption on the picture, it says water those in big caps. Mm. Now, the reason why it's really hard to <laughs> interpret is because those dead plants that picture is about shoes. <laughs> what shoes? So, <laughs> so if you're not clear on your meme literacies, it would seem like dead plants, and it's taking it very literally. But what it's doing is playing on the idea of the homonymic event of what are those? Instead of it should sound like what are those? What are those? What are yeah. those? Which is a vine about a young man uh, pointing um, at a cop's shoes and asking. Officer, can I ask you a question? What are those? And it became a meme so widely used that it's seen as a joke when Shuri says it to T'Challa in Black Panther, the film. (laughs) So that meme carries across into pop culture, but also into these very specific places that become in our brains. So to answer your question, after going through that weird windy loop, I think that the ownership or the creation aspect of memes is definitely in the hands of the sharer more than the creator. Uh, And that's the Doge car is perfect. So Dogecoin was a coin, a cryptocurrency based on Doge, the the icon. And they raised so much money, they were able to relabel an entire NASCAR vehicle and the Doge
1: car drove a few times on the track. I remember this. This was during ICO Mania. I think it was in seventeen. It's so crazy. And Elon Musk consistently plays with the Doge community and the Doge meme. I mean, he recently posted on Twitter something with like it was excuse me, a storm, like a sandstorm of, of oh, Doge. Yeah. I forgot about that. Taking over. Um, and it's it's uh, it's insane. It's crazy. I want to talk about kind of like the the light and dark side of this seemingly neutral phenomenon because, as you mentioned, it's like that you have this east versus west. You have this forking in Pepe, where it's this harmless, friendly meme in Hong Kong, and then it's associated with alt right in the United States. Can we can we unpack that a little bit? I don't know if I even have yeah, a question on that's this. tough. Just, I mean, see, this is where this is why like memes
0: themselves really are in a cultural studies space. It's it is. And I, and that's why I'm a constant proponent academically and in the real world of that media studies is no longer isolated to just media. It's media is always been culture. I mean, it's downstream of culture, but it's, is we, it's, uh, it's like the environment's kind of weaved now. Like we're kind of just, everything is mediated. And so, I mean, we're mediated right now through the pandemic, but we're also mediated by, just the idea of communication. So it's it's one of those things where that's reductionist in and of itself. So we're already reducing our in-person experiences down to the these, these communicative environments, which isn't good. It's important. I think that's, I mean, it's very good because we get to connect to people we may not have been able to connect with previously. And it's, on the other hand, it's bad because it's like, that 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 knowing of being near somebody and talking to them in their studio is like just kind of like lost in a bit, you know. So it's like that's there. The idea of memes being culturally significant in different spaces is as literally a tale that's forever old. Like as long as humans have been communicating, I think this is a really important thing to look at when you look at just the evolution of humans and how we got to now and understand that humans are social objects and. Our development with our youngest ages kind of develop how we are as adults but we also kind of like figure out how to negotiate friendship how to negotiate love and communication and what we do is we in order to carry complex ideas we reduce them we turn them into extremely short stories in our brain which are memes they're our own and they're shared with very small groups and those are your tribal type of memes where it's like, who's your family first, you have an inside joke, then a friend group that has an inside joke. While they don't uh, become memes, a meme is a cultural object, it has to be per- created, you know, it has to be, it has to exist sort of like media does. We can have meme kind of magic, which is the idea of like, you can manifest, you can manifest a meme into something else. So it's like, you can come up with a new joke, a new word or say it differently, just like Doge. So the word Doge, to like, this is a long line about story, but it's really important. The word Doge doesn't stand for that dog. It was in 2005, it was on an episode of Homestar Runner when Homestar misspelled dog. He said D-O-G-E and Strong Bad said Doge. And that became an earworm in somebody's head. And in 2009, I think when the photo of the Shiba Inu went on Reddit, somebody said, look at this effing Doge. And that merged (laughs) Doge and Doge together to become the Doge we know. And what it did, which is atti- attaches to your to broader question, is that now when you Google the word Doge, and this is for anybody, Google Doge, you will only receive photos of this dog, variations of it, of course, but that's not what a Doge is. A Doge is a Venetian treasurer from the Byzantine Empire, and they ruled the money of the entire European world for about 600 years. So imagine, Whoa. 600 years double the length of the united States' existence these people that kind of look like they had little smurf hats on ran the currency and they had dogecoin they had their own dogecoin that was their currency you could go to you go to saint mark's and go to the museum you could see the doges have their coins it's rooms full of them but the doge this historical figure is now overwritten historically overwritten so when you google a historical word the word no longer has its same connotation. So now you have to qualify it, Venetian doge, and you'll get the right results. And I think like the 14th picture is the dog anyway, but it is amazing when you think about those types of overwriting and where we are in a present day history and how I think we're just so overwhelmed and over-consumed with media. We forget that we're in a, this all happens over the long scale. We're around for a long time. So when we learned when I learned about Hong Kong's use of Pepe as a kind of a liberatory image, I was kind of like glad, I was like glad to see that because do, Pepe's always been complicated and it's a bit controversial and people still criticize me today when I use Pepe images as like backgrounds on slides and they go, ooh, you, you know, that's racist, right? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, yeah. I actually, I do know it's racist. However, I do also know that we could talk about it and bring it into a conversation because it's racist here. And it's Matt Fury is obviously fuming at that. He's killed off Pepe in the comics and he's winning as many lawsuits as he possibly can against using it in a racist term. But on in the other side of the world, Pepe's liberatory stance and image iconic iconography as like this celebrated uh, frog hero is also a copyright violation, you know? So it's like, there's these multiple layers of like, <laughs> what is images, objects, ownership, meaning, spread history and it's like the doge example is my favorite because it's like man imagine imagine like 600 years you're like well we'll we'll never be forgotten (laughs) and then this this machine called google comes out and then like three days after someone comes up with a new meme your history is just gone
1: (laughs) it's fast it's fascinating the power of a meme to completely rewrite history yeah that that is or access history more likely like
0: history itself is still there it's just the access to a certain narrative that history has been overwritten so it's it's that's the thing that we i think we have to keep in mind too like when we we study histories of technology and we we understand stories of exclusion or, or recognize the severity of moments is that oftentimes the histories we we know are the histories that were given to us so that's part of the Meme, list re- meme literacy, too, is that we have to do more access exploration of like the side stories and the tangents that have happened.
1: Have you evaluated or, or researched kind of the interplay between the, between memes and human biology? or human like where you mentioned i think you kind of brushed over it but where memes are stored in our brain it sounded like there was there's something there i actually have to open a notebook for that because that is you literally asked me a question that
0: i asked a cognitive psychologist the other day um (laughs) just full disclosure i I don't i didn't know the answer
1: (laughs) no it's all good it's fascinating um i I, there's that question i also want to go back to there's a couple of things I want to go back to, but we'll we'll start there.
0: Yeah, do you know do you know the term paradolia?
1: No. Can you uh, spell it?
0: Oh, uh no, I can't. It's very hard to spell. Neither can I. Uh, <laughs> paradolia, <laughs> let's see. Um let's see if I can pull it up. P-a-r-a-d-o-l-i-a. It's a very difficult term. Okay, paradolia. Yes, here it is. P A R E I D O L I A.
1: (laughs) Got it. Pareidolia. Okay.
0: So that is the, I mean, the official term is way different than I'm going to explain it. But um, it basically, uh, you see faces in inanimate objects. Um, (laughs) Ah, I'm like, I'm
1: the master of pareidolia. Any
0: rock I look at or any cliff, I'm like, so that's a survival skill. So you have a survival skill that's probably more tuned in than probably most people. um, That is the ability to, it's kind of like our fight or or flight systems. It's so if you recognize a face that's not recognizable, you could run from that so you don't get eaten. You know, it goes way, way, way back to our biology. Um, But that same thing is what reduces or creates pictures in our brain. And so I actually asked, I wanted, I asked that same question of a cognitive psychologist the other day, because I was like, I, I should know the real answer here. And it is your ability to create faces is kept in a part of your brain called the fusiform gyrus. Okay. I, and I'm not a cognitive psychologist or a brain neuroscientist in any way, mm. but that's um, where recognition is stored. And that is the part of your brain that creates deep memory. Uh, and so it helps you flow that in. So you have, ac- when you think of things, when you remember them, it uses both your surface memory and your de- deep memory to connect large concepts. Mm. And otherwise, you'd probably go nuts if you were thinking about everything all at once. Um, but that is the biology thing that I think Dawkins looked at. I think that's where when Dawkins was using the selfish gene, he's an evolutionary biologist. So he wasn't the way we use memes today or talk about memes is way different than Dawkins even would, too. He would be much more biologically interested than culturally interested, which I'm sure are hinged on each other anyway. But that's what he that's where the interest of that would be.
1: So that's so cool. And I, I think when I think of the selfish, um, when I think of the selfish gene, or when I think of Dawkins, I also for some reason, manufacturing consent comes to mind, and I know they're different. But um, well, one, I want to, I want to go, I'm, I'm actually going to pause that thread, because there's another thread that came up in my in my mind, and I think they're aligned. And it's just this, this question of, you know, the fact that Doge and Pepe are both somehow tied back to these historical, um, potentially religious and cultural concepts? It brought to mind Jungian psychology and symbolism, and the collective unconscious, <laughs> and whether or not—I mean, it's as a question. It's like, are these memes a recycling of? existing symbols that have already been in our collective psyche for centuries or are they you know is anything new is anything truly new or is it is it like floating in the ether and we're just picking up on these ideas again and just like reconstructing them oh wow and then the follow-up to that that i wanted to ask and like that's why i thought of manufacturing consent is are these truly emergent and how much of the kind of deep dark, like dark web interplay of conspiracy theory, government, you know, coming in and planting these, the Illuminati, I'm moving my hands in like a weird way. These are all, all these things like tie back to, to memes. Yeah, (laughs) this is, so
0: Joseph Campbell wrote about this. Long ago, in um, not long ago, half a century ago, um, that he called the monomyth, the hero with a thousand faces. And it is the Mm -hmm. idea or the concept that every story is just the same story. It's the hero's journey over and over again. And that's all we do. And if you could tell the hero's journey, you could either tell it in three hours in a movie like Titanic, or you can tell it in five minutes when you see Susan Boyle on uh, Britain's Got Talent. You know, it's the same same story. Okay, it's, however it is, but I think it's important we recognize the 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 connotations that you're bringing up here. And I think I always bring up in class, um, and I taught at like a Catholic school, so it's always like weird to bring up kind of like these reductionisms of this. But it's like we we talk about like the Tower of Babel, that story from the Bible. That's a hugely interesting story because of its temporal moment. It was told. Often, as a metaphor, while the Jews were kept as slaves, I think by the Phoenicians or the Babylonians, or maybe the same, I'm not really, I don't want to mess up history here, but the story was told. in fact check it later. Yeah, there's a story of hubris <laughs> about, it's a story of hubris, you know, the Tower of Babel, Let's build something bigger and reach up to God, and God smited it and made everybody speak different languages. And it's really multiple stories in one. One, it's the kind of the entry point to discussing globalism, that there's going to be different pluralisms around the world that everybody's going to speak differently. But two, it's also a portable story and a portable message that can be maybe historically 50, 60 years long, but brought down to something that can be compact into that. And so to answer your question, that is fantastic. Is is everything just the old stories read? regurgitated, maybe. I mean, I'm I think I think we come we find growing up or developing or going to school that like the tropes of our education kind of like tell us like how to know things, you know, and I think I don't the only way I, I could answer this without with any other way is like is there alternative versions of people who went to like alternative like education stances where they learned completely differently histories or alt histories the whole way. And when they came out of that, did they develop a new style of storytelling or understanding? And so I I actually Mm. don't know how that would be outside of that, except to say that I only know that all of our stories are usually recycled. They're usually reused, and that's only because they work. Um, I mean, James Cameron literally makes the same plot line on every film after Aliens. He, he, was, he used to make a lot of different plots. Yeah, but, but yeah Avatar Avatar, it, yeah, is, Avatar is when everybody says, oh, Avatar <laughs> is just every movie. And that's because, yeah, it, it's just like it works. It works. And it works brilliantly. And if you can tell a hero's journey, if that's like if you learn how to storytell like that, then that is, that's the story. That's the, the being, being singular, the story. And that's the meme. And when you get to understand the meme, that's everything. And so I actually do, when I teach a meme literacy course, um, I do get to the point where I, in the middle of the class, in the middle of like the entire lessons, like halfway through the semester, we go through the monomyth story. And I usually show like the idea of the Truman show and what it means to tell a story within a story and frame stories and Ozymandias by, Percy Blythe Shelley and so on and so forth, because it's the loop. It's a, I always draw like a tendril pattern. It curls back on itself, but then grows these tendrils. But it's always the same long tendril all the way to the past.
1: It's just so this, this subject is beyond interesting. I mean, it ties in so many different elements of culture and technology and religion and psychology. And I mean, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like even slightly. Do you ever feel slightly overwhelmed in studying this subject matter? Because it feels like there's so far more questions than there are answers when it comes to this. The the biggest problem I found thus far of um, memes or meme literacy, just in general,
0: is that people. And this is this is obviously I appreciate our conversation talking about it because it's really important to me to to get across the point that these aren't irreverent shareable images that they are connected to everything around us. And I think the the question of overwhelmed is so important because like I said, when I studied media and cultural studies, yeah, I, it's easy to just tell, I even just tell people, Oh, I, I studied memes. It's just far easier than to say, well, what I really studied was the undercurrent of cultures that were bubbling up into these digital spaces and codifying new terms and accidentally walking themselves into fascist ideologies. And people go, Oh God, like,
1: it's, I'm kind of like the guy, you just don't want to meet at a
0: party, you know, it's like, that's,
1: it's, well, well, I mean, I want to go there because like the meme, meme, well, sorry, finish your thought. Uh, so the, the, the point I want to bring up is that there's, it's
0: exhausting
1: because anyone can make memes.
0: Anyone can, um, anyone can manifest it. And I think this is where that metaphysics that you were leading to comes in is there's a, a recent example I just used, which I debunked is. There's a young woman on TikTok who, just to play around with her algorithm and the For You page, which is the front page when you enter the app, said, if you're seeing this, then August 27th is an important day for you. And that was it. It was a joke, but it manifested into a conspiracy theory because by putting that in, out into the universe, as we say, it flowed back. And in the digital spaces, it flows back rapidly. So now people manifested the idea of a curse or manifested the idea of something's going to happen, or are you lucky? And it's like amazing to me that that's the amount of power that a singular meme maker can, can do. And that's, that's a serious piece of this nature. And that's why, yeah, it does lead to like these ideological spectrums that it's too easy to reduce people to a very specific left or right stance. It's like, there's this very nice variation, but it does matter to how we speak in terms of what we use as the term of the narrative, like what's appropriate morals and like, what's right and what's wrong. And so it's, it becomes a little much harder to communicate. So it is important to understand the nuance of all this.
1: Yeah. And, and, and what that leads me to is a question of whether humans truly have the capacity to survive in a world where there, there is this massive distribution power of, of memes at this rate. In other words, you know, we, I think we as humanity, cult- culturally, collectively, individually, are overwhelmed, that's the word I'm gonna use again, and struggling to make sense and making sense of the world around us has never been harder. And I wonder if there actually is a, a going back to almost like the, um, you know, to Plato and to the, uh, the, the ancient Taoist philosophers who talked about the philosopher king, the sage king, this concept of basically, like, really, the sage king is is a curator of it's a he, he or she, you know, now is is a filter. At that time, it, it would have been a he, but is a filter for truth. And it almost, I almost question, like, we have, especially in America, we have this you know, ideological mimetic view on authoritarian power as inherently bad but now I'm, and and I've always felt that way I've been libertarian but now I'm like watching as as all these memes emerge and it almost feels like authoritarian power is it's like we're inevitably marching towards it both on the right and the left and I wonder if that's because people are just so so starved for someone to just tell them how to make sense of things
0: wow yeah that's that's really great I think I I mean, you could go on for days of just talking about sense-making. And I think um, we talk about this all the time. I talk with Doug Rushkoff about this a lot too, is sense-making is an ongoing process. Like it's, it's never something that you just like, I did it.
1: <laughs> I've, I've come to an understanding. There's, I know, but we want that. Don't you want that just a little bit to one day, like, be like, oh, I got it. If, if I can have a I day where I wake up, I, I see,
0: I don't know. Uh-huh. I don't, I'm not. So I have this phrase that I use often in just media literacy classes. When you know nothing, you know everything. And to oh. me, that's scary. Because when you know nothing, you know everything. The comp- the sheer confidence in knowing everything is wild. And I think a lot of what's going on in the overwhelming world is that we're all learning that we'll n- we don't we know so little that we know nothing. Like, it was like, there was this point where it's like knowing nothing meant we knew all what we could, but we're being pushed with all these new terminologies, all these new cultural moments, all these new, um, very like, um, very rough and quick movements that kind of disappear. And these are new terms. These aren't just like new things or new uh, processes from the past. We often say, the, the, these are unprecedented times. And, the, and then usually you get a historian that pops up in the replies and it's like, well, it's only unprecedented if you don't study history. And I go, well, I don't really know the precedent where we could literally create a meme and then a million people see it within minutes. Like that's just unprecedented. You know, that's just a time. And that type of overwhelming status of where we are, I think is like our sense-making abilities at this point are overwhelmed. We're, we're just firing on all cylinders. So we're just, I think if we stop and like really pause for a minute, like I think we, I think we'd get very confused, you know? It's like, so that's why I'm a very big proponent. As you and I spoke about once before, I'm a big proponent of like kind of mindfulness and yoga and like finding that space where you could at least know you and like get a grip on like what your breathing does and your mind does just because at least for 10 minutes a day, maybe you just have like a semblance of like something that you're like working on. And to me, that that to me is like a good reset of, of neuroplasticity that kind of helps you kind of make sense of other things. Cause if you could start small, like the, what is that the bodybuilding quote, little gains, big goals or something like that, like tiny steps. And then eventually you get to the point where you're just like, okay, I'm getting better at understanding like what the hell is going on. Cause it is, it's like, there's a lot, man, <laughs> just from our discussion. Like, I don't even know how much we covered at this point, but it's like so much to just discuss and like talk because it's a lot, a lot is going on.
1: A lot is going on and I want to, I want to draw back to this moment in time, this particular moment in time. And, um, I'd like to one point out the, um, one historical precedent that, that resonates with me of the, um, rewriting of access to history is the swastika as a symbol, you know, that symbol as a Jewish man, when I see that, of course, my mind immediately goes to Nazism, but prior to the Nazis, that symbol represented something entirely different. And I th- believe it was a, a Byzantine symbol for peace, but I could be completely wrong. It, on that.
0: I, yeah, I don't remember its origin, and there it's you know. that's a failing on my part because it's a symbolic. But the, that's um, I, it's either Native American, Byzantine, Eastern. I think the image, like the tendril pattern, This all started just, you know, a quick origin story of me. I took, I was an art history minor as an undergrad and I was a television major. I I was a former television producer, but I felt that television production should be complemented with art history. Like it's just a thought. I mean, it's just a selfish thought, but I took this course about the tendril pattern. It was an independent study and how the tendril pattern appeared simultaneously across the world at the exact same moment. And the Maori tribes, they tattoo it on their face. Um, in Scotland, we call it paisley, uh, in Syria, it's the actual tendril pattern. And that same thing showed up without people talking about it. It was just that part of time it happened. And if, trust me, okay, so this has
1: to lead to, go ahead. If you go but deep enough head, into that, you though, know question's coming next. You, you get like these <laughs> chills
0: of like, okay, there's something like human about a lot of this. Like there's just what humans do. So we do, a part of history is the reappropriation of symbols. It's just, it's too long of a time span. So before I get to the the idea of the swastika is that the idea of the uh, the upside down triangle uh, is important, that the LGBTQ community repurposed that in the 1970s for equality and rights, but in a design to say, never forget, you know, because the upside down triangle was used in the Holocaust to specifically tag gay members uh, or Jews that were Prisoners, so was, you can tell from a different distance. Recently, the Trump campaign made a meme that used the upside-down triangle, and they were trying to say it was an antifa symbol, which it was not. It was just a, an attempt at a reappropriation. So these reappropriations occur all the time, and we—that is what I was talking about with the narrative or the idea of the uh, uh, freedom of speech and so, far, so forth. Because we often think, like, what are the what are our rights in the United States? It's freedom of speech, but is it freedom of or freedom for like whose freedoms? Like, where do we get that? So the United States, you can use any symbolic imagery whatsoever. It's the intent of the image that is actually the line between the image and the act. Whereas in Germany, the image of a swastika is banned because it's a actual, it's, it has a meaning already kind of codified by its use. And so it is interesting that communities and this referring to 320 million people as a community is odd considering how, partisan the us is right now but the idea is that the community elects people to kind of decide how those things operate like how speech operates how how our rights operate and so it is like that that's always a good go-to because that's kind of that same symbolic layering that depends on what time you kind of pop into history is depending on its meaning at that current moment
1: yeah, and it's, I mean, I i feel just the importance of memes at this moment in time. I mean, the president today, July 30th, 2020, started calling for delaying the election in November. And I wrote about this three months ago, that I thought that there was a probability that the November elections would be postponed um, or not happen, uh, which is scary you know in in our current moment in time and watching the way that he has he has you know i i mean i'm i'm believe it or not i'm not the one to constantly point at trump and be like he's the the embodiment of evil he's you know the devil incarnate he's whatever like that's my, my whole family believes that i believe he's a product of of a moment in time Um, And If you listen to Steve Bannon talk about the rise of Trump, he brings up some really fascinating points as to the cultural moment that led to to the Trump election and economic moment that led to the Trump election. Um, But just also, but still watching the way he and his campaign have just primed his Twitter audience for this announcement. Mail-in ballots, mail-in ballots, mail-in ballots, mail-in ballots, day in and day out, the deluge you know, they just seem to be so proficient in meme culture. And of course now the the left and the woke movement is becoming proficient in their own meme culture. And um, I, I have a, as an, as an optimist, as someone that practices, you know, self-love and yoga and tries to view, view the other through the lens of compassion and oneness, man, I still have a hard time with this moment in time. I have a hard time believing that we're not marching towards something a little bit, a little bit, even more shocking than the current COVID situation. Um, And that ties in with memes. So I, it really does like this moment. Yeah. This is,
0: what do you think? Talk about overwhelming. You just overwhelmed me pretty intensely. Um, (laughs) I I apologize.
1: And I apologize to the listeners because I it doesn't it doesn't excite me to to talk about
0: these subjects. But I I do remember that piece you wrote and I think you weren't alone. I think a lot of people sorry, I'll say that again because I could not the pen. I was writing it down because it was a great thought you had. Um thank you. A lot of people I think were on that same fear and I don't think I don't think that fear is unexpected in any way. Honestly, to be very honest with you, I think people kind of like feel that way. I think that's just like if you're going to be corrupt, you know, put it a hundred percent, you know, all the way. Yeah. yeah. There's, um, but you're, it's you're American. right about this, about the symptom the, uh, Trump. I've never, I mean, I, I had a really nice letter from a student who actually sent me a, a nice note. I was writing a recommendation for grad school. And she said, you know, back in 2015, you were, you were the first ever teacher to say Trump's the next president. And I was like, well, yeah, she goes, how did you know? I was like, cause, I you could if you study this you could sense it I and mean, then the Bannon thing is important to bring up because Josh and I spoke to uh, Mitch Horowitz about this a bit too and the idea that look at the power in which they manifested that reality so it is it it is manifestation in many ways so think about the meme of election postponement does it and not to reduce it down to that meme but it is a meme because it's a concept that meme is planted you have to seed that you have to create the belief structure first. And then work your way back. So there is a very distinct difference between that in in, uh, left and right mimetic spaces. The right does a very sometimes abrasive and extreme approach so that when the lesser evil appears, you're like, well, it's not as bad, you know, (laughs) it could be worse. (laughs) Um, Whereas the left does it in a a very odd way that is interesting if you're not if you're not thinking about it, it, it's almost as abrasive, but in a cultural way. So when you hear new terms, if you're if you're in a rural area and you've never heard certain words, like you've never heard Black Lives Matter in your whole life. And all of a sudden this becomes a dominant theme inside your mind, it starts pushing a pressure against your way of life, even though it doesn't affect you in any way. But it becomes a an existential uh uh, qualifier that becomes an actual issue that you have to deal with and i mean deal with overwhelmingly you have to think about it now and in thinking about it, it means you're doing this some sort of memory labor or thought labor that kind of has to bring you to the point where it's like i just wish i never knew this at all there is a distinct mm-hmm. difference though because the the when the right far right i'm speaking far right no, not just the right and the far right when they push a new type of the horror extreme it often deals with elimination or violence or to violence to the human body. And that's a bit different than a cultural expression. You know, it's a di- difference in our cultural terminology that is like, okay, we want to use new words or we wanna tell people that they're accepted in new ways. That might be an existential mental threat, but it's not a physical threat. And so those are like the, the memes that I think are really important to be reading right now. Andrew Morantz wrote a really, really great book, which compiled a lot of his articles called Antisocial. About how the the web kind of is hijacked um, by these types of terms, and I think that's a really good guidebook right now. Of like uh, to kind of, if you really want to be overwhelmed, you're like, oh, I'm really, I'm having a good day today. I'm gonna to be overwhelmed. Uh, pick up that book and, uh, and kind of get a sense of like. I just I just typed it in my Amazon wish list. list. It, it's fantastic because Let's it, go. it explains <laughs> the existential threat that was there. That starts with, as Banda would say, economics and the mainstream media. You know, the disdain of the the mainstream media's exclusionary tactics during the Obama era created an existential threat to certain voices. And those voices became further right and often locked and solidified themselves in digital spaces, running new accounts, new publications, becoming edgelords or meme lords, edgelords being people who are very aware they're pushing the buttons. Um, And Mm, that type of thing is an environmental change that is very new to all of us so i think as people we have to keep ourselves mentally healthy we have to do our best to be mindful and and express care and self-love and because it's it we we are who all uh, what we have you know so it's like important to to prioritize that in the face of the meme apocalypse
1: (laughs) the meme apocalypse that's going to be the title of this episode for (laughs) sure thank you um this is so, I'm fun so to talk ca- about. I'm so caught up on this this question of emergent versus pl- implanted. Right. right? Like mm-hmm. it's just especially with the way the way that like it does feel like to me that there is a way for institutions that are designed to wage information warfare as a group could have figured out how easy it is to plant these. There's this incredible article. And I think it was previously speaking of memes. I think it was previously on, um, uh, what's the the slate star codex, which we can, we can talk about the slate star codex as well. And he, it was this article about, uh, something scissor sherry scissor and how, um, how an idea that, was so polarizing could be injected into even the most um, harmless of situations. Their company was working, it was like a marketing company working on this idea and it got injected into their company and they built it and they didn't realize that they unleashed it on themselves and that it was working. And before they knew it, the company ended in like, and I don't know if it's a true story or not true story, but the company ended in basically disarray lawsuits. They all hated each other. One side thought one thing, the other side thought the other, and I'll link to it in this episode. But it's this idea that we can, we individuals, governments, institutions, people pulling on the puppet strings can inject something into the digital vein that runs through our collective culture intentionally and and it's the it's also the idea behind snow crash. I mean that's what snow yeah, crash was the metaverse, as well. It's yeah. Like, you're right. <laughs> so let's just get this little virus in there but yeah. it's not manifesting in like in matrix style. It's manifesting in destroying our ability to trust each other. And that feels to me not emergent, but I also then like I don't want to be on the conspiracy theory side of things. And so maybe these things are emergent, but I feel they're both playing at the same time and it's I think
0: we, there's um uh Oh my gosh. i gotta get the title. Hang on. Um no worries. So Adam Curtis is kind of like where um I that kind of radicalized me into that thought process. Uh, he he uh, did this documentary called hypernormalization in 2016. And it's kind of like the chaos theory of explanations, kind of like what you're getting at is like the are there's no like has all of this always been, I guess is a good question. And that type of approach is so broad that it's, it's like a mind bender. And I think you're getting at something that is the deeper truth of all of this. That is that nothing exists in any vacuum is that we're all attached to some other thing that happened and it is the butterfly effect to its expansive rate. And because we're so probably close to the singularity which is that moment in our future, which we'll probably be alive for when some sort of AI gets a consciousness. Um, we're so close to that moment that. GPT-3. But <laughs> like that's, once that happens. Write me a meme. <laughs> yeah. We, once that all happens, like that's the ultimate, we call it the singularity because we actually are at the precipice of the unknown, like the, the vast unknown. Like we've always kind of known and what it does take is a, a broader scale and not literally not dumping into conspiracy at all like just a broader scale of knowledge to know that if you go back like to matt fury drawing pepe in 2004 that he would end up becoming like a hate symbol in 2017 like how would you even get there like so everything is attached to something else and so the idea of seeding in my in my opinion of this is just like another variation of capitalism like it's just there's got to be a way to function and profit and in order to do so you have to kind of figure it out in the broadest scale possible and then slowly but surely create that future it's kind of like those self-fulfilling prophecies otherwise the system the systems won't be structurally sound in their future so it's kind of like seeding and, I, and you can't say it's like new it's not cap- capitalism didn't invent it it's just like um a process of just humans and interactivity and elections and taxation so i guess you
1: could you you could probably blame the ancient Greeks maybe for everything, but it's, (laughs) uh, well, I mean, you said the spiral emerged at the same time in history. So it might be the aliens just playing games (laughs) with us and watching plan this episode on this episode of planet earth. (laughs) That was that old South park. One of my favorite episode called Uh, cancel,
0: which is so apt for these days. They, reality producers of the universe decide that earth's just not getting the ratings it used to. It's getting canceled. (laughs) Earth is getting
1: canceled (laughs) right now. They had to ramp it up for the last season. It's
0: it's a a very, uh, it's a very inappropriate episode, so to speak, just for the warning to the audience, but it is a, it is a a moment, but there's, yeah, I think without jumping into any of those deep conspiracy theories, it is one of those things where I think we could take solace in knowing that we'll never know, I think is important. Um, how much of this was not emergent, not new, um, seeded, constructed, or just part of discourse of just how we, let me put it to the, in the Bostrom text, like Nick Bostrom wrote a a whole bit on the singularity uh, in which he talks about the idea, the possibility that we've already been digitized, that we're already there. And all this is, is like the first level of a video game where you're kind of being trained on how to use the tools in the machine. And he asked questions, very good ethical questions. If this was a singularity, why would you reproduce in any space being poor or being sick? Why would you reproduce in any way harm if you could have control over the entire way of the way things are constructed? And then he said, well, this brings us to the bigger point is that you have to remember that if you are thinking, then you are still, even if we are in a singularity, you are still alive. It means you have you have succeeded to that point. And that means somewhere in there, there's agency, even if it's on a very, very small scale, is that we do have control over some things. And that's that's his takeaway in that, is that even in the face of everything that is the unknown, all these memes that are being created without our control, is somewhere in there. We have some sort of control over something, and our agency allows us the ability to maybe not free ourselves of any types of like structural bondage or something, but at least we have some ability to think. And in that, we have the ability to become cognizant, aware, and potentially for those of us who could do more than others, care for those who can't, you know? So it's like, we do have that type of little space in there. And I think that's important in in its entirety of all these things too.
1: Yeah. I'm also reminded of um, Agent Smith's speech to Morpheus about the first matrix being paradise and essentially explaining the Garden of Eden and then coming back and saying, you just want it out. You could not take it. It was just too good for you. You needed the filth and and the harm and the violence in order. Otherwise, you didn't. You wouldn't believe it was real.
0: Right. I kind of feel bad nowadays that a lot of people haven't seen The Matrix. It's like kind of like really tough to teach, knowing that
1: a lot of people haven't seen it. So I often make it homework. (laughs) I mean, it's my favorite movie of all time. Me too. By the way, I've also watched two and 60 times. Have you? Yeah. Amazing. Me too. I I probably as much, if not more. And I've watched two and three again recently, and I have to say they were both fantastic.
0: Really? I've It's a plan for me to rewatch those. I I did like them when they were at the time, but then people said things about it and it went away. I, I should go and revisit that.
1: Everybody hated it at the time because the first was just so groundbreaking. And then as they were doing the second and third you know, because the medium is the message and the way The Matrix was filmed was so, so revolutionary. Then if you remember, every movie after that looked exactly the same. So by the time two came out in three, it was like, all right, we've seen this a hundred times. and and But the philosophy behind it was still so real and so good. And I'm also reminded in, in your kind of description of Harm and why, you know, Nick Bostrom's piece, which I can't wait to read now, um, of... Of the Bhagavad Gita, going back to everything being new that is old and old that is new again, when Arjuna puts on his augmented reality goggles to look at Krishna in his true form, Krishna, who is the embodiment—he's the Christ figure in this in this realm—he's the—he's the Godhead, um, but brought down and manifest in human form. Krishna turns into his true self, and his true self is—is. Is, Death and violence and the wheels churning and teeth chomping and destroying soldiers, but also the beautiful flowers rising on top of the dirt and mud and muck and the worms crawling around in the filth. But then the air and the sky and the sun, he is all things. It is the simulation is all things everywhere. It's all part of it. And, uh, and Arjuna needed some serious virtual reality goggles or augmented reality goggles, even to be able to, to witness that and not go insane. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, I love that story. That's honestly one of the reasons why I kept
0: meditating is after hearing that story. I think my meditation instructors are really good that they didn't tell that story right off the bat. That was kind of like, first of we'll do this for a bit. And then all of a sudden, like little by little, they leaked that story in and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So it's it was the, the, the ultra strength of your mind that allows you to know that the goggles may, it's kind of like the, they live, you know, you put them on and all of a sudden you can see everything that is, but at the same time, that doesn't, when you take the goggles off, it doesn't mean it all went away. You know, it's being aware that you could be okay in that world, even if you don't see it all. And I was like, oh man yeah that's that's good that's good that's That's a good tool set to have I think especially right now
1: it's so juicy and that's why I feel like that software that program of yoga you know thinking of yoga as as kind of like cultural software that's survived for so long is built for this moment in time because it is literally built to level up our nervous system to be able to handle these kind of conversations to be able to be like I'm going crazy but like all right, I'm okay.
0: Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent cool. agree, hundred percent. And that's uh, I actually I speak. I moved to the uh, I used to live in the the city, and we moved a couple of years back uh, to Connecticut to the woods. And I I always said you know I I really wanted to go to the woods, and they were like why to the woods? I was like because it's at least that's the one thing that I know that I could like be in and like be like reconnect with my insides and my spiritual nature and like everything. Because it was like, if I'm gonna spend my entire day looking at the the horror of these memes, <laughs> I'm just gonna need some <laughs> little bit of wood space.
1: <laughs> have you um Have you ever read Thoreau's essay "Walking"? Yes, mm-hmm. I
0: oh, actually teach it, in, uh I, I I do environmental humanities as well, um, and I teach that a lot of Thoreau, transcendentalism, and Emerson, and the poetry of the time as part of like just getting a grip on. Again, just like you were saying, it's like everything new is everything old is new again you know like
1: that was the because the transcendentalists were around right around the industrial revolution no it was like so that must have been just a sea change in the world i think that was the timing they might have yeah you're you're right yeah the so the world around them was was getting much more connected
0: um thomas cole's work which has now become very relevant relevant again thomas cole's course of empire which is worth looking up is a five piece, massive painting that of just does the course of empire. His piece was in response to seeing train tracks. This is in 1832, 1836. When he was, he lived in the Catskills and when he saw train tracks being installed across the mountain areas, he believed this was it. This is the end. And so he, the transcendentalists and the romantics kind of worked together with their poetry and painting to recreate a romantic nature. And we're still in romanticism. We're still in it now. We just are overwhelmed by the internet, but we're in that era. And it is important to remember, like we can r- use our imaginations to think about the spaces that exist solely for like the beauty of it. And like, I think that it's, and transcendentalism is part of us, you know, it's our choices and what we make.
1: I love it. I, um, we're running low on time here. So I have a couple of kind of like a little more rapid fire questions sure. that yeah. I wanted to ask you personally. And I don't always do this, but Okay. Here we go. Sure. What is your favorite meme?
0: (laughs) Um, Wow. Uh, My favorite meme is probably the cat meme, the lady, the real housewife yelling at the cat at the table. I just, that's my favorite. I think it's just too easy though. Bad Luck Brian is still my favorite old school meme. Um, Okay. Just, I just feel like the setup and the punchlines are just, I love them. Like that's just one of my favorite meme formats, but I really do love the, the pointing at the cat at the table meme. I think that's just so perfect. <laughs> I,
1: have to, I have to look at this one. I, I haven't seen it. So I'll add that as well to the, yeah, yeah. Uh, the any, any version of that was just listeners. too funny for me. <laughs> um, Do you have a virtual alter ego?
0: Wow. Good question. Used to not anymore. Uh, no, I, I do. Um, I, I mean, my, my Skype name and my Instagram name are jblue62. That comes all the way back from my, AOL screen name days and my avatar that I used to use as like my digital space. I And it's not that I don't have a virtual space anymore, a virtual person. It's honestly, it comes down to like time and access and stuff. So I just haven't been in enough digital spaces as a virtual character. So right now I'm using... My identity, my actual identity, which could be dangerous, but I, I use my <laughs> current identity in digital spaces. So, because
1: I'm imagining you have a Doge Pepe oh, no, hybrid I avatar with Keck in the name, maybe. No, I. If I did,
0: if I was running undercover, though, I probably wouldn't like really reveal the name just because I wouldn't want to dox myself. But no, I, know I, I do not I, currently I run to do, I in a want virtual to dox
1: yourself. <laughs> just <laughs> curious <laughs> if you had it. Yeah, um, I actually wanted to ask because you said Lowell turned to Keck. So it just LOL, like laughing out. Yeah, loud. Yeah, laughing out or? loud
0: uh, was Keck, and the it was a, a sort of a similar version of LOL, but it uh, was used as shorthand in World of Warcraft. So that just again, lots of weird things in the world happen simultaneously, and we, speaking of sense making, don't always make sense of things exactly as they should be. So we make our own sense making, and from there forward, that's what
1: it is. Who wins the election this year? Oh if is there an election oh
0: okay so uh, let's make a few assumptions Uh, first if um, if there was an election today Biden would win Um, I can tell you at this point I'm just a quite a cynical realist at this point and I do still think Trump uh, could potentially win uh, this fall like that's just the feeling that I get based on things that have gone haywire and what we don't understand is like the cultural swells that could happen at any given moment um and the unknowns. So if it didn't happen today, Biden wins. If it happens on November second, I would say right at this moment I'd have to give it a 50-50. Um, and then if it gets delayed, well, I guess we had, we asked Julius Caesar what happened, you know.
1: <laughs> have you seen um have you seen Brock Pierce running for president? So Brock is an independent running, he was big in the crypto space, and before that he was um built a business that was Multi hundred million dollar business mining world gold in world of warcraft. He's very, very familiar with the world of memes. I'm actually fascinated fascinated by his campaign. Wow. Um aliens exist. Do aliens exist? Do yes, they do. Yeah. Are they here?
0: I think uh, my, my opinion is more on the Fermi paradox of this. I think we're a, an outpost in this galaxy. <laughs> and I
1: think okay. occasionally they just check on it. <laughs> but I think we're it's in the world. Memes. Have you seen that 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 uh, that video of like the robots come and they're like, it's thinking meat. <laughs> it's meat. And it thinks and, it's, and it sweats and it, it talks. It's like, no, but they must have like some kind of computer chip in them. And it's like, no, it's meat. It's, it's just all meat. meat. Yeah. Like, we're just meat bags.
0: Yeah. I say that all the time to the students. I was like, keep in mind, you're just a... Uh, a big meatbag that has to kind of make sense of everything. Um, yes, aliens exist. Are they here? I don't know. Uh, I'd like to think they are, but I just honestly don't know. I always think we're <laughs> just a, tell me. Uh,
1: I just want we're to in a rural
0: you. outpost of the uh, of the galaxy, and occasionally they just stop by and they're just like, nah, now's not the
1: time. We'll be back later." <laughs> we're just humble, humble yield farmers out here in the, uh, in yeah. the edges of the galaxy. I just the, the universe is entirely too big to think that there's no such
0: thing as aliens. It's just. There's, like, they find new exoplanets every day. At this current moment, I believe the most recent stat is for every grain of sand on Earth, there are four four potentially habitable planets in our universe. So it's, uh, (laughs) there's just the chances are...
1: And and for the best review of the of Fermi paradox I've seen, wait, but why? Yeah, he's he's incredible. Absolutely, I want to give you the opportunity before we go to just anything that you want to share with the audience, um, where they can find you, or even just an idea that we haven't spoken about, because all of your info will be posted in the show notes. W- whatever you want to share, floor is yours.
0: Thank you. No, I just
1: would like to people to make sure
0: they subscribe to this show, which I think is fantastic. Uh, I think they should. Um, Continue to learn about everything you talk about and continue to learn about blockchain and cryptocurrency as well. Uh, for myself, you. Um, you can follow me at New and Digital on Twitter. Um, and then you could follow my project I'm working on with Josh Chapdelain called Digital Void, uh, which is our salon series and podcast where we kind of bridge, bridge the gap between people who speak digital and the public. And so that's a project uh, that you can follow along, that. and we're trying to diversify our guests as much as possible as, as well. I'd love I'd to
1: come talk to you guys
0: on that. Oh, if, we would love to have you. Are you kidding me? me? Please, not, I don't have the PhD, but... <laughs> you will get an invite immediately after this.
1: <laughs> thank you. <Okay. laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for hopping on, Jamie. I'm so happy Josh connected us. Yeah, and thank you. I mean, just, I know it's just the beginning, so... It is absolutely so the beginning. When, and
0: thank you for your time. And I really appreciate your voice and your words and everything.
1: Thank you. Likewise, likewise. All right. you, Rob. All right. Hello, Look Up listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Look Up every Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Or you can subscribe to the Lookup Weekly Newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to M-A-R-C at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, For those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in. And I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have.